2022 underway, and we're off to the races. Welcome to the Texas Take, the number one political podcast in the great state. Back for another year, Jeremy Wallace at the Houston Chronicle. How are you, sir? I'm doing great. Got new tires on my car. I'm ready to travel Mm -hmm. the state and chasing down every one of these gubernatorial candidates. It is absolutely go time. And I'm Scott Braddock, editor at quorumreport.com, where we would love to have you as a subscriber. Just go there and click subscriptions at the top of the homepage. We'll get you signed up. Now, we do have all these races that we're going to cover in this edition of the podcast, as well as everyone throughout the entire year, Jeremy. But let's start with the anniversary of January 6th, which, as of this week, we are now one year removed from. We are still taking metal, sharpened objects, missiles to include bottles and rocks. And hand-thrown chemical-grade fireworks. You know, Jeremy, when you watch video or listen to audio from that day from one year ago, it's tough to listen to. Uh, and it reminds me of watching all of it happen in – it felt like slow motion, right, because of the way that it unfolded that day. Uh, I think that the members of the House and Senate who were there on the floors of the respective chambers, you know, as they started to realize what was going on, it probably wasn't – um, at least viscerally and at first sort of the same as it was for people watching the, uh, you know, the live video unfolding in front of them uh, on CNN and MSNBC and everywhere else, right? That it was, it was sort of slowly happening that these people were converging on the Capitol and starting to storm into the building. And look, I think at first, one year ago, Democrats and Republicans were pretty much on the same page. Yeah, Is that fair? Sort of like, and I know the comparisons between it and 9-11 get criticized for various reasons, but I think it's the same in this respect. Everyone was on the same page right after 9-11, right? George W. Bush had a 90% approval rating or higher, something like that, right? Democrats, Republicans, all on the same page. Let me prove to you that this was not controversial with Republicans at that time, or at least most Republicans. What did Senate GOP leader Mitch McConnell say about it in the days after that had happened at the Capitol? There's no question, none, that President Trump is practically and morally responsible for provoking the events of the day. That's in the Senate. In the House, what did the GOP leader Kevin McCarthy say about it. That doesn't mean the president is free from fault. The president bears responsibility for Wednesday's attack on Congress by mob rioters. He should have immediately denounced the mob when he saw what was unfolding. These facts require immediate action by President Trump. Now, of course, Jeremy, both of them were against impeaching the president over it, but they said that he bore some responsibility, right? So a year removed from that, the attitudes and the way Republican office holders from Texas and other places have changed a lot. I was talking uh, with Texas Congressman Roger Williams from here in North Texas. I'm reporting from Dallas today. He said that it is possible, and he's still holding on to this, Jeremy, it's possible that left-wing activists were involved in what happened that day, and I asked him about it. To me, it was more of a riot. I mean, you had a lot of various people in there. I mean, President Trump and his supporters get blamed for it, but there was Antifa. There was Black Lives Matter. 
uh, we there are people who said we had a lot of Europeans involved in this thing. But you say, you're uh, saying that Antifa and Black Lives Matter were involved in the January 6th deal, or, or are you saying that you know we should be more concerned about those protests? I just make sure I understand. No, I think they, I think they had an involvement. I think they were very much involved January 6th. Was there uh, and, any evidence of that that you could present? Well, I don't know that I could present evidence. I was there. I saw people that uh, uh, looked like they might have not had the best interests of our country. Well, for and sure. And, and and so I I mean I'm not here to declare one or the other I mean I was I was there I saw things uh, a lot of at, at that time uh, a lot of people uh, might have been uh, underreacting overreacting uh, a lot of people feel like the police were not prepared to defend the Capitol uh-huh. uh, that gets back to Nancy Pelosi and whether she allowed them to have the resources to do that or not. Jeremy, the way that this is talked about, it, it seems like there are certain words that certain folks don't want to say. Uh, Republicans don't want to say the word insurrection. Uh, with some exceptions, they don't want to use the words terrorists or domestic terrorists. You pointed out to me uh, that Houston area Congressman Troy Nels was uh, talking on PBS the other day, right? Uh, he's from Fort Bend County. And you remember he was one of the people that we saw on that day actually defending the house. Yeah. He, he was at the back doors um, as the uh, rioters, the domestic terrorists were trying to make their way into the house chamber. The doors started shaking violently. I mean, the doors were locked, but uh, people were banging on those doors and, and Capitol Police were there. He says some of the people who were there did terrible things, but, and you noted this, Jeremy, uh, there were others that he said were just wandering around and not really doing anything wrong. There were individuals inside that Capitol building that day that committed uh, a very uh, assault uh, on police officers and some of those assaults even being aggravated. If you were inside the Capitol that day and you broke windows and you destroyed property, you should be held accountable. Um, If you assaulted a law enforcement officer, you shouldn't just go to jail, you should go to prison. And I think most of the American people agree with that, that that when you were in there and you were committing criminal violations of the law, assaults, destruction of property, breaking the windows, you should be held fully accountable for your actions that day. But what we do know is there were many people inside that Capitol building that day that were not doing any of those things. They they weren't touching anybody. They weren't assaulting anybody. They were walking around inside that Capitol building. Many of them were grandmas. Many of them almost appeared to be ushered in. Uh, and, and so their only crime that a majority of the people inside that building, uh, uh, the, the people that entered that building, I guess the only crime was maybe entering the building. And many of them, quite honestly, didn't even realize that they were committing a violation of the law. So if Nana was in there just kind of wandering around aimlessly, then that was okay. Jeremy, what did you make of him making this uh, point that there were those who w- were more violent than others who were just kind of following folks in or or were even ushered in there by other people? I kept thinking in my when I heard that, that this is the guy who was the sheriff of Fort Bend County. This is law enforcement. Right. Uh, if there are people in law enforcement who are now like kind of couching which people were really criminals and which ones were just uh, trespassing after the doors got knocked down and after the police officers were attacked. It's like you start making that separation in your police officer, you're in the police, law enforcement. That kind of struck right. me. It's like I was just kind of really thrown off by that. I thought Nails would you know, be a little bit more uh, defensive of law enforcement and the Capitol Police who 
you know, I think we can all agree, put their lives on the line to make yes. sure the members of Congress weren't actually killed that day. Uh, people were coming for them. And you see those images of those, you know, understaffed Capitol Police officers moving people around. Look, I worked in the U.S. Capitol you know, for a lot of my career, you know, at, you know, three or four times I've you know worked up there. I know all those nooks and crannies and how scary the hell that could be mm-hmm. to be in one of those corners where the mob's coming for you. So, yeah, it's like it's hard not to think the Capitol Police officers like I seem like they should get a lot more respect for what the heck yeah. they went through. Well, and it seems like there is just an attempt by some Republicans, not all, but some Republicans to do anything that they can to avoid offending anyone who supported former President Trump, right? Yeah. And, and and I think it speaks to a political reality that has been talked about. Uh, this is certainly not my original thought, but others have said, uh, smarter folks than me have said, look, the thing with Trump is, one of the dynamics that he brings to the table for Republicans is he can uh, take votes away from them in their primaries, but he doesn't add votes for them in November. He doesn't bring new people to their coalition, so they can't lose the people who are his supporters. Now, the uh, host on the show on PBS, uh, Lisa Desjardins, who was uh, interviewing Nails, she, um, like you and I, she noticed that he is carefully avoiding saying anything about President Trump's role in all of this on that day. And she tried to drill down with Congressman Nails about that. At four o'clock on January 6th, you wrote this tweet after seeing what you did. You wrote, what I'm witnessing is a disgrace. Violence is never the answer. A strong tweet from you. But at that moment, as of that time, President Trump still had not told the rioters to go home. And we know there were many, many Trump supporters in that crowd, if not the majority of the crowd, from my experience. Did he do enough? What do you think his role was that day? Well, I don't, I, I'm not in Donald Trump's head. I wasn't in the, the Oval Office or wherever he was positioned that day, and I wasn't one of his top advisors. So uh, I, I don't know. I mean, could he have maybe said but something? But he's your, pre- he, he, he was our president. Maybe. But I have to he say, he, he was our earlier. president, maybe he Republican. You support him. But but you, you alluded to earlier you about think- when I made the comment about being ushered in nobody on this select committee, and it's Pelosi's select committee, Benny Thompson is the puppet, and she is the puppet master. You want to claim that it's bipartisan, when you look at bipartisan, uh, Miss Cheney and Kinzinger are Pelosi Republicans. Of course, again, none of that answers the question of what he actually, of what Nails thinks about Trump's role in all of this. And let me just call out something that politicians, by the way, do on on both sides of the aisle. I've heard this uh, over the course of my career. You have too, Jeremy, where you ask someone to weigh in and give their opinion of something that someone did. And they will say, well, I'm not in that person's head and I don't know what they were thinking and I can't speak for them, is what Nails basically said about Trump. That's not what she asked him. She asked, what's your opinion of what he did, right? He's avoiding that question uh, altogether. And I think, again, this goes to the idea that if you're a Republican office holder in this state and in most places around the country right now, um, you are going to do anything and everything in your power to avoid pissing off anybody who supports former President Trump and still supports him maybe even more than when he was president. 
Yeah, that's that's clear. It's like it, it, you, you could see even on that day, you know, President Trump put out a lot of press releases. Uh, I ended up with some like I want to say twelve or thirteen press releases from former President Trump over forty eight hours, and a lot right, of them yeah, were you defending mean this week. Yeah, yeah, yeah it, it just in forty eight hours of this mm-hmm. week, you know, it's like and he was defending, you know, like his role on January sixth, and 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 saying a lot of this stuff where it, it sounded like you know he's in no mood to take blame from other Republicans for what happened on January 6th. And those Republicans know it, even in a safe election, you know, some Republicans are going to be afraid of touching that, you know, potential opposition from Trump. They don't want that. Mm -hmm. Nobody wants to end up like, you know, Liz Cheney right now, you know, within the Republican party, except for obviously Lynn Cheney. Right. Well, I was going to mention uh, that the physical embodiment of all that is uh, interesting. You bring up Cheney. It was Liz Cheney and Dick Cheney, her father, the former vice president, the only Republicans on the floor of the U.S. House this week when there was a moment of silence to uh, yeah. commemorate or, or remember uh, whatever the right word is there, uh, you know, the, the anniversary to mark the anniversary of January 6th. Now, on this same issue, you saw Senator Cruz make a statement this week that he has said before, and I want to say this at the outset, uh, Senator Ted Cruz, the junior senator from Texas, has repeatedly said that the people who you heard at the beginning of the show, those folks who stormed the Capitol, he has said that those were terrorists, domestic terrorists. And he said something similar in a hearing this week, and this did not go over well on Fox News Channel, um, in particular the Tucker Carlson show, where the host, Mr. Carlson, was very very unhappy with Cruz. So I would like you to hear what Cruz said, and then you will hear uh, Carlson go off on Ted Cruz. We are approaching a solemn anniversary this week, uh, and it is an anniversary of a violent terrorist attack on the Capitol where we saw the men and women of law enforcement demonstrate incredible courage, incredible bravery, uh, risk their lives, uh, to defend the men and women who serve in this capital. Now, let's be honest. Everyone who's conservative appreciates Ted Cruz. You may not like him, but you got to appreciate him. He's legitimately smart. He's one of the more articulate people to serve in the Congress, maybe the most articulate. He doesn't use a single word by accident. Every word Ted Cruz uses is used intentionally. He's a lawyer. He described January 6th as a violent terrorist attack. Of all the things that January 6th was, it was definitely not a violent terrorist attack. It wasn't an insurrection. Was it a riot? Sure. Was it a riot? Sure. Here's the interesting thing about that to me, Jeremy, using the word riot to act as if that's not a horrible, horrible thing to somehow downplay that by using the word riot. And you've heard Carlson and others do this. They'll say, yeah, it was a riot, but it wasn't an insurrection. I mean, that's, that's crazy to act like it was an insurrection when the word insurrection's basic definition is a violent uprising against the government. What was that then at the U.S. Capitol one year ago? Also, I will read to you right now before you hear the next thing that you're going to that you're going to hear. I'll read to you the definition of terrorism. OK, because this is key. Let's get it right, because I was lectured this week about words meaning things. OK, and and, and I have said that sometimes people in our profession and, you know, this is true. So there, is, there are some folks in our profession in journalism who get hung up on specific words and what to label things. I mean, is that. Is that fair? But life is nuanced. Life is nuanced, though. Uh, And that uh, saying that, I think, is not in conflict with uh, with this, which is uh, on the definition of terrorism. 
that what happened on January 6th definitely fits the definition. So from the dictionary, here it is. Um, terrorism is defined as the unlawful use of violence and intimidation, especially against civilians, in the pursuit of political aims. What happened on January 6th was intimidation of members of Congress to perform their constitutional duty to affirm the results of a democratic election, right? So I don't know how that's not terrorism by the dictionary standard. Now, Carlson says that Cruz was wrong. And after Carlson attacked Cruz, Cruz texted him directly. He, he and, he and uh, Tucker have a good relationship. Um, and uh, you'll hear Cruz say this on the show. And I want you to listen to the exchange between Carlson and Cruz, and this is um, this is this is quite a bit of this that we're going to play. And some of you who are listening might say, Scott, why are you playing so much of this when it's so uncomfortable for Senator Cruz? If you know anything about me, you know that's why I'm going to play a lot of it. So here is <laughs> here is Carlson and Cruz as Cruz basically begs for forgiveness. So I guess what I, I mean, there are a lot of dumb people in the Congress. You're not one of them. I think you're smarter than I am. Uh, and you never use words carelessly. Um, and yet you called this a terror attack when by no definition was it a terror attack. That's a lie. You told that lie on purpose. And I'm wondering why you did. Well, Tucker, thank you for having me on. When you aired your episode last night, I, I sent you a text shortly thereafter and said, listen, I'd like to go on because the way I phrased things yesterday, it, it was sloppy and, and it was frankly dumb. And I don't buy that. Whoa, 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 whoa. Well, I don't buy that. For, look, I've known you a long time since before you went to the Senate. You were a Supreme Court contender. You take words as seriously as any man who's ever served in the Senate. And every word you repeated that phrase, I do not believe that you use that accidentally. I just don't. It's, so, Tucker, as a result of my sloppy phrasing, it's caused a lot of people to misunderstand what I meant. Let me tell you what, what I meant to say. What I was referring to are, are the limited number of people who engaged in violent attacks against police officers. Now, I think you and I both agree that if you assault a police officer, you should go to jail. That's who I was talking about. And the reason the phrasing was sloppy is I have talked dozens, if not hundreds of times. I've drawn a distinction. I wasn't saying that the thousands of peaceful protesters supporting Donald Trump are somehow terrorists. I wasn't saying the millions of, of, of patriots across the country supporting President Trump are terrorists. And that's what a lot of people have misunderstood well, that comment. Wait a I second, but even you, yeah. wait, but hold on. What you just said doesn't make sense. So if somebody assaults a cop, he should be charged and go to jail. I couldn't agree more. Mm -hmm. We have said that for years. But that person's still not a terrorist. How many people have been charged with terrorism on January so listen, 6th? Like, why'd you not, use that word? You're playing but, into the other side's characterization that, as Joe Kent just explained, allows them to define an entire population as foreign combatants. And you know that. So why'd you do it? So, so Tucker, let me answer you directly. The, the reason I use that word for a decade, I have referred to people who violently assault police officers as terrorists. I've done so over and over and over again. If you look at all the assaults we've seen across the country, I've called that terrorism over and over again. Cruz, again, uh, keeping with the theme here, Jeremy, going out of his way to try to make sure that anyone who supports President Trump does not misunderstand that he might have been calling them terrorists. But let's be clear. On January 7th of last year, a year ago, in a tweet, Cruz called it a, quote, terrorist attack. He has been consistent about it until 
he was called out by Tucker Carlson, and I think it speaks to the power that some of these uh, conservative media figures, uh, Carlson included, Sean Hannity included, certain radio talk show hosts, um, they have real power within the Republican Party, right? Because these are the people who talk to their base and to their voters every day of the week. I think that you had pointed out at one time that um, it was significant that uh, Dan Crenshaw, who we'll talk more about in a little bit on a different, uh, on a, actually on a, on a related topic, but Dan Crenshaw had lost the support of a, a conservative talk show host in Houston. They're really afraid of this, aren't they? Yeah, you can see that, you know, if you're going to play in conservative Republican politics today, uh, you have you have a big chance of, you know, going sideways with some of the big leaders of it. And by the leaders, we're talking about the the, the Sean Hannity's of the world, you know, the, the mm -hmm. talk show you know hosts, the people who have big you know, platforms, they can they can make or break, you know, certainly a presidential candidate. You know, if they you know, can turn on them and you can see, you know, as Ted Cruz is sitting there trying to ride this wave where like he wants to call these people terrorists, like he says, he always called people who attack police terrorists, like in any right. way, shape or form. But here he is telling Carlson, like, you know, he's having to like kind of hat in hand, he's having kind to of hedge apologize this. Yeah. for something that you think he probably believes in, you know, yes. but he's trying to kind of work around something and i'm not sure if there is a workaround this is one of those things where it's like you can see he's looking for well, a way to appease both sides of the conservative spectrum on this mm -hmm. but i don't think you can do that on this topic and it's like either there were terrorists assaulting the capitol or they weren't you know you can't right. be both right it, yeah you can't have it both ways uh, at all it, it, and he can't say this he can't say hey look life is nuanced and i'm saying that anytime anybody attacks a, a law enforcement officer and by the way these are all the same people who who support the quote back the blue yeah. movement you heard at the beginning of the show those people saying f you police right at yeah. the capitol those are the same folks um, and so cruz can't say <laughs> he can't just go on fox and say uh, y'all are too dumb to understand what i'm saying which is that the people who attacked officers are the terrorists and anybody else. I mean, go back to what uh, Troy Nels was saying, the congressman from the Houston area. He was saying that he, he, he was trying to sort of thread the same needle. Yeah. He, he may have done it a little better than Cruz. Of course, he wasn't being attacked by Tucker Carlson, but he said, hey, there were some people there who were peaceful and they were fine. And there were other people who should go to jail. I would say one other thing about Carlson, which is he's making this sort of a um, sort of a thing that is race based. And what I mean is he talked about the idea that uh, that Cruz was lumping in those people at the Capitol with foreign combatants, which he's getting into another legal area there too terrorist and former and uh, and foreign combatant those are those are different things uh, foreign combatants are people who were maybe captured on the uh, you know on the battlefield uh, you know in afghanistan like the taliban those kind of folks some of the people who were held uh, at uh, guantanamo bay uh, who may not have been terrorists in the united states but were foreign combatants so he's mixing a whole bunch of different things together there but i think the bottom line is for anybody like cruz or Nels, or Roger Williams, who you heard there at the beginning of the show, they're desperate, again, to not do anything, even if they don't have, and here's what's really fascinating, even if they don't have serious Republican primaries, yeah, they'll do anything to not piss off the people who support former President Trump. Uh, Dan Crenshaw and Marjorie Taylor Greene, uh, Greene, who, since the last time we did a show, she was banned from Twitter uh, over some of her COVID um, 
misinformation. Uh, the the company said that uh, she, this congresswoman, uh, one of the Freedom uh, Caucus members, uh, she was uh, spreading misinformation about COVID. Twitter said that she was violating their terms of service, violating their rules, and so they kicked her off of Twitter. Some folks said this was a First Amendment violation. Of course, it's not. Nobody has a right to a Twitter account. Um, but uh, she and Crenshaw had mixed it up before about some of this same stuff about about COVID, and they're still going at it across not just and now she can't even do it on Twitter anymore because she's banned, but across social media, Jeremy, they've been fighting it out. One uh, Republican fighting another. Yeah, exactly. Well, and Marjorie Taylor Greene's you know getting booed off Twitter. It comes right around that same time that Crenshaw and her were having this you know battle with one another on Twitter and on all the different social media platforms. Ended up spilling over to Instagram. I actually had to get a Getter account in order to keep tracking this. What thing. is Getter? Getter is the thing what that Stephen that... Miller, you know, G E T T R. Uh, this is the thing hmm. that Stephen Miller, the uh, former White House, you know, staffer, uh, created as a social media platform. So it's like oh. it's like whack a mole. You know, every time you think you get the the, the story between uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene and Crenshaw, I had to go to a different platform to kind of figure out the conclusion of things. But you know, it all boiled down to like you know, yeah. you know, Crenshaw had been on Fox News talking about how you know FEMA had to you know help Texas get more testing done, and Mar Marjorie yeah. Taylor Greene took offense to that, uh, saying that more federal involvement is not a conservative idea. And she started slamming him for not being conservative. He needs to stop calling himself a conservative. He's hurting our brand. You know, and if, and you know, but Crenshaw, well, one thing we were learning from Crenshaw, Crenshaw doesn't turn the other cheek a whole lot, right? You know, right. It's like maybe it's that Navy SEAL in him, uh, but it, like, mm -hmm. it's not like he took the shot and was going to like, okay, well, what, I'll, I'll let it slide. No, he did not let it slide. He ended up saying, you know, that, uh, you know, Marjorie Taylor Greene needed to, uh, you know, understand that he was following Trump policy and not Biden policy like she is, and then suggested she might be an idiot. <laughs> you know, and so guess what? That kind of set might. thing on more fire. <laughs> you know? She might be the dimmest yeah, bulb. But, but uh, the back and forth is one thing, but it kind of shows you kind of what we're seeing with Cruz and the Tucker Carlson thing, where it's like you can be a conservative Republican, uh, but you're going to at some point have to explain some nuances of your conservative philosophies. There's always somebody further to the right of you, no matter where you are in the Republican Party right now. And it sure. ends up mattering. Mm -hmm. You see, you know, in the case of this fight with Marjorie Taylor Greene, it's only added to this uh, in, uh, intensity of the fight against Dan Crenshaw now. He's, mm -hmm. you know... You know, he, we heard him like back in December, people listening to the show will remember that back in December, he was talking about the grifters in the party, yeah. you know, and right. really kind of labeling people like Marjorie Taylor Greene and Matt Gates and all those people yeah. at the Freedom Caucus as grifters within the party. Yeah. Here he is again, now in that same mode. Well, there's some you know, voters in Montgomery County, uh, new territories that his district now includes that are saying, mm -hmm. hey, wait a minute, I kind of like the, the Freedom Caucus people. I like mm -hmm. Marjorie Taylor Greene. And what are you saying, Dan Crenshaw? And so now he's having to explain to them, you know, it's like how he can be a conservative and still be against Marjorie Taylor Greene. And I think that's what the whole Republican Party right now is kind of is in this weird spot where like you got to be careful what you're saying about who, uh, because, again, there's always somebody further right of you that you have a chance of offending.
Right. And the Democrats, of course, have a version of that, too. Yes. I mean, both parties have their uh, purity tests. Uh, you know that there are a lot of young people who are, I would say, sort of the, the Bernie Sanders set. They're the ones who are, are the most left of all, the most uh, the most liberal. Some of them who, who would even say that they are um, socialists, right? Because yes. that's the way that uh, Sanders talks about himself. I was told about some polling recently in which a lot of the Democratic candidates in Texas um, and also uh, the president himself, uh, Joe Biden, is viewed uh, negatively by young people, 18 to 30. And of course, the reason is they're not liberal enough. Yeah. People like Biden and Beto, uh, et cetera. Uh, and so it's not unique to the Republican Party, but at least especially here in Texas and around the country. But we see a lot of it here in Texas because, as we've said many times, this is a Republican primary state. We see it on display in a way that maybe some other folks don't get to see, uh, you know, in, in, in from the front row seats like we really do. Um, COVID numbers around the state have been going up. You were tracking that. And I think just this afternoon, you put out something on Twitter that was uh, yet another update that's not good for us, right? Yeah, it's, it's really shocking. We're back up over 9,000 hospitalizations you know, from lab confirmed COVID cases. Uh, 9,000 is huge. We haven't been up that number, you know, since back in September. Uh, so and, and even just since Christmas, we're almost triple of what we had, you know, during the Christmas break at the very beginning of it. And so you can see, like, things have gotten out of here really quickly. We talked about it before, like Amarillo and El Paso were already being strained. But now you're seeing it in Dallas, you're seeing it in Houston. You know, the hospitalizations are way up and the strain on the medical community is real. It's like legit. Yeah. It's like, say what you will about like the debate over vaccines or not vaccines or mm -hmm. whatever. The end result is the hospitals are kind of overrun right now and have fewer workers than they used to because of COVID. You know, they're having having COVID outbreaks themselves. They have people who have left the profession, the strain mm -hmm. of being in the on the front lines of the medical community. So yeah, we're, we're at over 9,000 hospitalizations. We're now, according to the state of Texas, at least officially over 75,000 deaths uh, as well. Uh, we had another 114,000 just reported today. Uh, so the numbers just, 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 just won't stop. You know, it's like, it just seems like this nightmare. Every time you think we're starting to kind of get in a little bit of a clearing, you know, here we go mm -hmm. again. We're back in this mode of, you know, are, is there enough hospital space for just regular life, let alone for pandemic life? Well, I think people are definitely, definitely worried about it. Uh, I'm here in Dallas and have been all week and uh, I'm here on assignment uh, and it's COVID related. Uh, my friend Mark Davis, who's a conservative radio talk show host here, tested positive for COVID and his company policy, uh, where he works at Salem Communications uh, at uh, 660 AM, the answer, uh, the radio station here in Dallas, their policy is that you have to quarantine for 10 days. Uh, and they did not even go down to the five days after the CDC had sort of changed what the guidance was on that. The, the company he works for said, stick with the 10 days. And so he did that. So he asked if I would guest host his radio show, which I was happy to do. And uh, one thing, well, a couple of things. One, um, just in being in Dallas, and when you know, when you're going to be on the road, you have to go to restaurants probably more than you would, even if you were, you know, even if you were just home, although I eat out quite a bit but anyway, when I'm home. But bottom line is I've been to restaurants in Dallas. Nobody's in any of them. They've emptied out. People are not there. Obviously, people are worried about this virus. I, I felt safe just because I was, in some cases, I was almost the only person in the restaurant and the staff is all masked up. So I felt okay about that. Um, but uh, but yeah, people are very concerned about this. You see it all over the place. Um, and uh, in filling in for Mark this week, 
I got to do some firsthand checking in on the race for Texas governor. This is going to have you on the road most of the year, Jeremy. Me yep. too. Because guess what? We've got a primary and we have a general election. Let's let's check on all of it. Uh, the governor has what's being billed as a major announcement on Saturday. Now, I know a lot of people listen to this show over the weekend. So if something huge happens, you'll want to watch our Twitter feeds uh, at Scott Braddock, at Jeremy S. Wallace. Check out quorumreport.com, houstonchronicle.com uh, for whatever the big announcement is from Governor Abbott. I'm finding it difficult to imagine it's going to be something that really changes the, you know, the trajectory of any of this, Jeremy, but it could be. I'm just giving them the benefit of the doubt. Um, on the Mark Davis show, I talked with a two of Abbott's Republican primary challengers and with Beto O'Rourke as well. Um, Don Huffines up first. You know, we reported here that Governor Abbott has been moving money around, some state money, and he is taking private donations to build a border wall. And Huffines is very unimpressed with this. Listen, you will hear what Abbott is saying about it, and then we'll get Huffines' reaction. And it begins today because we are building the border wall in the state of Texas. There are deadly consequences because of Biden's open border policies. And it's those deadly consequences that the state of Texas is stepping up to address through this unprecedented effort to build the border wall that you see behind us. Texas is going to do everything possible to keep your community safe. So he says, Abbott says that he's doing everything possible to keep communities safe. You don't buy it? No, of course not. Look, if Abbott really wanted to secure the border, he could have done it seven years ago. He could do it tomorrow. The border is not secure. It's, it's more porous than it's ever been. Border Patrol saying a million and a half to two million illegals are going to pour across there unapprehended into Texas. This mm -hmm. is an invasion. It's, it's, it's all it is. It's, it's an invasion. So what would you do different? He, I mean, he says he's building He says he's building a wall. He's got all of these uh, troops down there. He's got DPS down there. But what would you do that he's not doing? Well, look, I, he, he wasn't going to build a wall until he copied it off my website when I was running after about six weeks into the race. He never talked about the wall. Yeah. And that's just a joke. He's building it for a mile and a half, two miles there about Eagle Pass, and it's not even that good of a wall. It, this, There's I a lot of holes in I'm that wall. Do. I mean, honestly, I was looking at the video while I was playing that for you. There's a lot of holes in that wall. And I think it's about 200. Sure, yeah. Like you say, it's about, it's about 200 yards. Yeah, you can just walk around it. It's it's all for politics. All for politics, he says, and uh, it, and it's not a very it's not even a very good wall, uh, Jeremy. Someone was joking that maybe the announcement from Abbott is going to be he's going to tell us what color the wall is going to be painted. Um, Alan West, also in the GOP primary, blasted Abbott for the way that members of the military who are stationed on the border are being treated. Well, it's uh, something that is sad to report. And one of the things that you're supposed to do as a commander and a leader of our troops is to make sure that those troops are taken care of. They have a clear and defined mission, task, and purpose. But in the past two months, uh, we have had five suicides in the Texas uh, National Guard and the, another attempted suicide that was thwarted. A soldier had slit his wrist. And when you think about the fact that these are young men uh, to this point, just young men that are deployed right here in the state of Texas. But why are they taking their lives is because as many of them have contacted me uh, through back channels, 
uh, they're suffering from pay situations. They're mm-hmm. suffering from deplorable living situations. Uh, like I said, they don't have a clear mission and task and purpose. Jeremy, it's not just on the Republican side that Abbott is taking criticism over this, the treatment of uh, you know folks who are in the National Guard who are stationed on the border. It's also the Democrat in the race, Beto O'Rourke, who's talking a lot about it as well. Right. Oh, yeah, absolutely. You, you can see, you know, this issue has taken on a whole new life because like early on in this Operation Lone Star that Abbott's been calling it early on is like a lot of the troops who were assigned to it. It was kind of on a voluntary basis within the National Guard. Uh, you know, you didn't have to go, you know, if you had other reasons, you know, or it, it didn't want to participate now because they need so many people. So many people are active in it. It's now mandatory. It's not it's not a yeah. voluntary process. So what you're seeing is a lot of these young men and women, you know, like they don't have a choice here. So if they do have like, and remember, these are part time people. These are people who have other jobs in the community. They have families. Right. And now they don't have the option. And it's, you know, the Army Times did a really good job on this. I, mean, I got to be, you know, give credit where credit is due. Army Times talked to some soldiers uh, just about how difficult it's been. Like some of them are getting like very short notice to basically leave their family, leave their jobs and head to the to the Texas border. And it's creating a different kind of strain on these people. And and I think that's where, like, West, you remember, West is a, an Army veteran. He was there for it's a very long guy. time. Mm-hmm. And through, these are yeah. his people. These are the people he kind of really cares a lot about. And if you think about, you know, Beto O'Rourke, you know, one of the, you know, he gets a lot of criticism for what he hasn't done when he was in Congress, right? One of the things he did do was focus on, you know, suicides and mental health issues within uh, the United States military. You know, it's a one piece of legislation he did really kind of, you know, take charge of and really get some success on was that very topic. So they're both really inclined to talk Mm -hmm. about this issue. They know this issue in and out, and they can both see that, like, look, you may want to do what you want at the border, but we shouldn't be losing you know, soldiers, you know, to this effort right now. There's, there's no, Mm -hmm. there's no combatants firing at them. There's no, nobody from across the borders coming for them. These people are losing their lives still in the conditions are relatively terrible. You you hear about like, they don't have places to go to the bathroom. They don't Mm -hmm. have, you know, proper sleeping quarters. It's like, you know, there was the army times reported. Some of them don't even have enough ammunition. You know, don't, you know, it's like, what are we talking about? Yeah, this sounds West, like the Iraq war mm-hmm. in those early days of the Bush administration. Right. Yeah. And uh, Wes talked about that as well, not having um, enough uh, proper equipment for these yeah. folks, not having ammunition, not having body armor uh, and all of that. I also asked him about, and I went back and did the math on how much money has been allocated by the Texas legislature for quote unquote border security over the past few legislative sessions. Um, and if you add it up, it's at least around six billion with a B, $6 billion for border security. So how do you have that much money, Texas taxpayer dollars being spent for this purpose, and then have those soldiers be in that position where they don't have the things that they need? That rubs a lot of people really the wrong way. And the way Wes said it was, what do we get for that money? What are we doing? And and I would add to that, if you, and I've, I've said a version of this before, I'll repeat it. If you take on the responsibility of performing what you continue to say was somebody else's job, let's say um, that in this case, the state of Texas, Greg Abbott and the legislature have said, this is a federal responsibility. The federal government is supposed to be dealing with border security, but they take on the responsibility themselves and spend $6 billion of your taxpayer money for it. 
What are you getting for it? And at what point is it their responsibility to have spent it well, right? To, 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 to look at it and go, what's the result after spending $6 billion? You can still say that it's a disaster after all that money was spent. Then what are you really doing with it? Um, and, and to have uh, Abbott down there bragging about a mile, you know, a mile's worth of border wall it, and having to uh, gather up uh, private donations to build it. What were they doing? I, I think it's fair to say that there has been so little accountability for how that money has been spent through de the Department of Public Safety. Um, you know, you would have the head of the DPS uh, come to the Capitol, Steve McCraw, and he would uh, testify about this stuff. And he spits out a whole lot of numbers and talks about uh, drug interdiction. He talks about uh, you know, the apprehensions of folks. Uh, this is having real world consequences. I mean, at some point it was easy for me to kind of laugh off some of this stuff as just campaign tactics and campaign photo ops. Um, but when we hear about troops who are killing themselves, when we hear about people who are signing up for a gig that's supposed to be, what do they always call these folks in the National Guard? Weekend warriors? Yep. Because it's just supposed to be a part-time thing. Well, they're not weekend warriors when they're being called up to just stay down on the border. It's having real-world consequences for them. We also hear about these allegations of human rights abuses on the border where, where for example, uh, we had heard about some uh, immigrants being taken into custody. Uh, they had been uh, you know, on public land or on a public easement along a roadway or something. And then the accusation was that uh, law enforcement had marched them over to private property, put them on the private property, put these immigrants on that private property, and then charged them with criminal trespass because they're on the private property, right? The law enforcement denies that, but these are the kinds of things that are being thrown around now, real world consequences for real people. And it's not just campaign rhetoric. It's not just, uh, you know, putting, putting up a, an ad like Rick Perry used to do years ago, uh, where he's standing on the border in his Carhartt jacket, talking about how we're going to secure this border, uh, because Washington won't do it. Um, this has all gone to another level that is really impacting real people. Well, and, 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 you know, remember this, you know, and we all know this, you know, you don't have to be from Colleen to know that this is a military state, right? You know, it's like, we kind of, kind of forget that, you know, like, you know, San Antonio, you know, it was, it was all of its bases with, you know, like all the people who grew up, we more veterans in the state of Texas than any, I think we're number two in the nation in terms of number of veterans. We got 15 bases. We have a lot of people whose lives and livelihood around military. And so when you're hearing about soldiers, you know, dying, you know, for this action at the border, you're sitting there going, what is happening? There's a lot of people that's going to bother who are in mm -hmm. the military community who are like, look, it's like, I don't mind serving, but our guys shouldn't be feeling like, you know, like they're at their end you know, because of this mm -hmm. assignment, you know, it's like, so I, th I think there's an audience, you know, who really super cares about this, you know, it's like beyond just the human nature of it, of, you know, mm -hmm. you know, young men and women, you know, maybe feeling like they have no place to go uh, to get help, you know, but, you know, then you throw on top of it, how many people in this state know what it's like to be in the military, know what it's like to be on assignments mm -hmm. like this, and know what kind of help should be there. They're seeing this and they're going, wait a minute, why is these, why is a 21 year old kid, you know, killing himself on a parking lot in San Antonio because he was called up? This doesn't make any sense. And somebody should take responsibility. Now, that's where, like, I think Alan West and, you know, Beto O'Rourke are coming together. Two people politically on the spectrum that can't be further apart are kind of agreeing that somebody's got to answer for this. It's like this can't be just one of those things that we just move on and go on with our lives. It seems like this is one of the things that should really be stopped. It should be front page news and should be on the news everywhere that there are young men who are killing themselves to serve us. 
It's like, that seems like yeah. a big problem. Yeah, I remember um, when Governor Perry years ago started these deployments of DPS down to the border. Uh, this was before they were – I mean, they had put some troops, a limited number, but Abbott has really ramped it up, um, and DPS officers were down there as well. Um, I was at the Texas Capitol, and I was talking to a DPS officer uh, who uh, told me – and I, I won't use his name here because it's uh, – you know, there's no reason to do that, But and I don't even know if the guy is still with DPS, but he had just joined – as a trooper around the time I was talking to him, around the time they had started doing some of these deployments. And he told me that he would much rather have stayed with the local law enforcement agency that he had been at prior to DPS. If he had known what they were going to do was send him down to the border to write traffic tickets, yeah. you know, for two weeks at a time, and he'd have to be away from his family. Now, I will say he, this is a guy from Central Texas, um, had said, you know, I would much rather have just been patrolling the streets you know, in, in here where I live, rather than go down there and basically just write traffic tickets, um, he did get uh, a little bit of a boost in pay by, by working for DPS, was very hard on his family. And those problems have just gotten worse and worse and worse for, uh, for DPS uh, officers, as well as those people in the National Guard as well, as this has dragged on. So the other thing that Alan West and Beto O'Rourke agree about now they don't agree on the details of what should be done but they agree that there's a big problem the, the other thing is the electricity grid and you have uh, west saying that uh, abbott needs to do more to address the problems that were exposed by the big winter storm last year in february uh, because west and beto agree on putting a focus on the grid I asked West about that as well. Yeah, and I think Mr. O'Rourke wants the more to be done for us to go into the Green uh, New Deal side of the house, and I don't agree with that. Well, maybe, but I, guess my, but, but I guess my question goes to whether or not uh, you and O'Rourke are more in tune with what Texans are worried about and Governor Abbott isn't. Well, that that is definitely the case, but uh, I think that we're looking at two different means. But without a doubt, Texans should not be freezing in their own homes. And I think that the problem is an over-reliance on the green energy. The other thing there, uh, of course, would be what Beto has to say about it. He says that, look, he hopes nothing goes wrong with the grid this winter, but that doesn't mean that he and West and others shouldn't be focused on it. No, I tell you, I, I pray that we will have a mild winter because if we don't have extreme weather, it's, it's very likely that the grid will be okay. But right. what ERCOT tells us, the folks who actually are tasked with managing the grid, is that if we do have severe or extreme weather, we may have a 40% shortfall in our ability to generate the electricity that we need to power our homes and to keep the heat on and to prevent our, our pipes from freezing again, mm -hmm. as they did in, in February. So uh, I think it's just really important that we're very clear with each other about what we face. And you don't have to take my word for it. Look at the sales of generators um, in in the state of Texas right now. Right. And it's hard for you to get your hands on one because folks understand that that grid's not fixed. Right and left, Republican and Democrat, Jeremy, saying that this is something that Texans are worried about. And it's true. I've also seen uh, polling that shows that it is in uh, the top of everybody's list. Uh, across demographics, it's either number two or three. And some of the other things that people prioritize in this state are things that you might imagine, like border security, like the economy, like health care, uh, et cetera. Uh, but the grid is right up there. And it's interesting to me 
that of all the issues that I named, those others are things that people in other states would worry about. The grid is very specific to what's going on in Texas. And so I could imagine that you might have an election year in Texas. I'm not making a prediction on this, but you might have an election year where it could be a great year for, you know, for Republicans everywhere except Texas. Yeah. What if, what if, and, and again, not predicting this, you still have to handicap it for the GOP in this state. But if you have rolling blackouts this winter, or maybe more likely this summer, as we have said previously, because, hey, we get into the hot summer months, July and August, um, you know, when it's over 110 degrees sometimes, uh, and you might have rolling blackouts, that's even that's also even closer to the election than a winter blackout would be. If that happens, it would be contained within the borders of Texas and could completely flip the script. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. It's like, that's where like, you know, it, it, you hear it all the time. Like if you ever watch whatever your local news is, like almost every weather person, when there's a freeze coming, they go, don't worry, it's not going to be like February. You know, it's like almost like assuring, right. you know, all of us like, but like I was at the grocery store right before a freeze in Austin and mm -hmm. you could see there was a run on bottled water and milk and bread. It's like, we're in this mode where it's, it's like, okay, it could be just a small freeze, but that's what they said in February. You know, and it's like, and people like right. did not realize that, oh, by the way, we might go a week without power, you know, if, you know, ERCOT rolled the dice poorly, you know? Yeah. You know, it's an interesting point because I remember, uh, rolling around in Austin in my, I had to, uh, click the, uh, four by four on, on the truck because it was snow and ice, which you'd never have to do in Austin. <laughs> but I did that, uh, that first couple of days, uh, there during the freeze last, uh, February. Uh, and as I was you know, driving around, one of the things I saw was people lined up to get food. Yeah. I mean, at, at restaurants, uh, I saw, you know, a pizza place down on, I think off South Congress, uh, not the, uh, not home slice that everybody's thinking of, but there was some other place I, I, that I drove by, uh, where people were just waiting in line to just get a piece of pizza. And the same thing was happening, um, uh, West campus uh, yep. at UT where people were waiting at stores, waiting to get in to get basic supplies because they had not planned. And all this comes, and here's the thing, it's not just the media that says, hey, it's not going to be that bad, don't worry about it. These kinds of things require leadership all the way from the top. And one thing Democrats are going to remind people about, and they have already started to do this, is that in the lead up to the storm, what did Greg Abbott say out loud? He said at a news conference, we have the ability to keep the power on all across this state. And that did not happen. And as we talked about here on the show previously, he proved to be incorrect. The Democrats are going to say that he's a liar, right? That he said one thing and that the opposite happened. I'm going to give him the benefit of the doubt. But you could imagine that in a state like Texas with the resources that we have and emergency management that we have, that the people who handle emergency management for the state the folks like um, uh, Nim Kidd, who heads, uh, heads up the Department of Emergency, um, Emergency Management, they may have laid out for the governor a scenario that looked a lot like what ended up happening. Yeah. But the governor may have not wanted to tell people that was going to happen. And there are going to be those who will criticize later and say he should have given people a more clear-eyed uh, you know, assessment of what was about to unfold. So we will keep an eye on this. And uh, I think both Republicans and Democrats will join Beto in praying for a mild winter. One other thing about the race for governor before we go, did you see this ad for Don Huffines, who we mentioned earlier 
this ad that ran during the Cowboys game. Oh, absolutely. Yep. The other night. Yep. Got a lot of people talking. And uh, he made a lot of promises in that advertisement. Take a listen to his list. We heard what Greg Abbott had promised people, uh, you know, as far as the wall and keeping the lights on. Here's what Huffines is promising if he's governor. Florida is kicking our butt. It's embarrassing. They're beating us with their leadership and they're winning Super Bowls. I'm Don Huffines. When I'm your Republican governor, Texas will stop the illegal invasion at our border, and I'm not asking permission from the federal government. We will put prayer back in our schools, restore our culture, and the Cowboys will get another ring. That was the part that got people really talking, that the Cowboys will win another ring. This uh, ad ran multiple times during the Cowboys game, which the Cowboys lost, by the way, which some people said, well, is that Huffine's fault? <laughs> uh, based on based on his ad, it would be the opposite, right? He's saying that they're losers because Greg Abbott is the governor now. Yeah. Now, I would say people read too much into that. They're, they're sort of falling for the gimmick here, right? Which is that, uh, look, it's, it's no different from, and this is the way uh, Chad Hasty, who's another conservative radio talk show host uh, out in West Texas, Hasty had said, it's not really different from you know, like when when uh, Beto O'Rourke will go to a college campus and put on the hat of that, if he's put a Texas A&M hat on or a UT hat on or a Texas Tech or, or a Texas State hat on while he's at a rally with college kids. It's, it's the same thing as when any politician or a performer goes to Houston and says, how about those Astros? Or they're here in DFW where I am today and they say, how about them Cowboys? It's really no different from that, but it got people talking about it. And I saw that um, it was getting a lot of Twitter traffic, of course, if people go nuts about this sort of stuff on Twitter. Um, a, a friend came to me and said, hey, you know what is silly about this is, hey, no one's really talking about this. It's just it's just to people like you, like journalists and politicos and people in Austin are talking about it. They're making too much of it. I said, maybe that's right. But then here I, here I am in Dallas. I was driving around in my truck. And I turned on one of the most popular stations. I'm saying this for a reason. It's one of the most popular radio stations in this market in Dallas-Fort Worth is a sports station. They don't typically talk about politics. Sports talk, uh, let's see, the one in Dallas is called The Ticket, is, is the big one here in Dallas, right? And they were talking about the Huffines ad promising a Cowboys victory in the Super Bowl if Huffines is elected governor. And to me, that kind of means it's one of those things that transcended politics a little bit, right? It's the kind of thing that actually is a breakthrough uh, when you have the guys on sports radio talking about it this way. That feels really? like a real Hail Mary. <laughs> Look, I, I know you don't care about any of this other stuff. Probably going to try to get some companies in here and, you know, taxes and I don't know. Grid. But, uh... We're going to win a Super Bowl. Who? If you, Don Huffines, it, who's trying to primary Greg Abbott for governor. And the, the crux of the ad is that Florida, I think he actually says, Florida's kicking our butt. And they're winning Super Bowls. <laughs> Invoking the Tom Brady Tampa Bay Super Bowl win. He's like, I, can, I guarantee you, if I'm governor, the Cowboys are getting that Super Bowl. Now, he didn't really elaborate on the plan. Like, how is he going to affect that outcome? But that feels like a joke the Musers would write into a campaign ad bit that they do every year, right? I love like, it. Vote for me and you'll have an apple pie every night and the Cowboys will restore their dynasty and win Super Bowls. So I wonder if that'll be brought up in a their televised debate. 
Yeah, look He's under this guy next to Greg Abbott. Like, all right. So, uh, what's your guy. what's your response? Yeah, under you Mr. they flame out in the first round every time, Mr. Governor. That's from the Ticket Sports Radio, thirteen ten a.m. here uh, in Dallas. It, it, look, Jeremy, it's it's one of those things that uh, that people will make fun of and say that it's stupid. I think anytime you get a lot of buzz for something, it's it's you know it's decent for a candidacy, but. Here's my overarching point about it. People are talking about it for the wrong reason. The right reason to talk about it is that you have a challenger to a sitting Republican governor in the primary who can afford to run television ads during an NFL game, right? I don't know how much that costs, but it's a lot. And so I was running this by Huffines when we talked earlier on the Mark Davis show this week. And I said, hey, Mr. Huffines, between the NFL game ads that you ran, between the billboards that you have all over Texas, all along the I-35 corridor and everywhere else, between all that and the mail pieces that I've seen from your uh, campaign so far, you're probably on track to spend at least about $10 million in this primary, right? And he said that's a pretty good guess, and he revealed to me that so far he's going to report about $11.5 million dollars raised by his campaign. And he said he hoped to double that, Jeremy, to about $20 million before this is all said and done. So this is a campaign where there's going to be real resources that are uh, spent. Yeah. And, and in his case, you know, boy, you know, look, we're 50 we're something days away from the primary election. And I'd venture mm-hmm. to guess that most people, even good Republican voters outside of DFW, have never heard of Don Huffines. So if he can right. get them talking about anything, even if it's predicting cowboy wins at this point, like that's yes. what he needs. Because, like, mm-hmm. you know, you check people in, in Houston and San Antonio, they don't know who Don Huffines is. You know, it's like, you know, he's got a lot of work to do in a very short period of time. Absolutely. All right. We will track all these races as we get into 2022, but it's fair to say we are well underway with primaries all over this state. If you enjoy the show, you know you do. You should be a subscriber on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, however you listen to your favorite podcast. Give us the best rating that you can and write a nice review. We appreciate it. We'd love to have you as a subscriber at quorumreport.com and houstonchronicle.com, and we'll see you next week. 